Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Yearbook Wise podcast. My name is Mike Simmons, and I advise Tesserae at Corning Painted Post High School in upstate New York. And I've got to say to uh, all of you listening out there, uh, happy Crown Day. The uh, Columbia Scholastic Press Association is announcing crowns uh, in the 2018 class of yearbooks uh, as I record this. And congratulations to everybody who's on the list. And uh, I can't wait to see what comes of it in March for, uh, for all of these schools that are honored. They are uh, naming 85 crown finalists today between uh, college, high school, and middle school media. So congratulations once again to uh, all the friends and listeners of the podcast who are, uh, who are being recognized by CSPA. Earlier today, I uh, had the, the pleasure of talking with um, an all-star advisor about a, a topic that is near and dear to my heart, photography. I interviewed Jed Palmer, who is the advisor at Eagle Eye View at Sierra Middle School in Parker, Colorado. Uh, Jed is the kind of advisor and, and really the kind of, of person who makes me want to be uh, both a better advisor and, and better person. He is uh, kind and uh, witty, sarcastic, intelligent as heck. He's an incredible father and husband and uh, just a, a master advisor. He has, if you'll believe this, a middle school staff that numbers, uh, I think if I've got my numbers right, in the high 90s. That's 9 zero. Uh, 90 middle schoolers um, are at, in some capacity uh, involved in the production of Eagle Eye View. They are, uh, speaking of crowns, a perennial award winner, one of the best books in the country, um, not even just one of the best middle school books in the country, just one of the best books hands down, and it's really quite magic what he's achieved with those kids. We unpack all sorts of topics uh, in the uh, realm of photography, uh, and suffice it to say, this is going to be the first of many conversations that, uh, that I have with Jed and with other uh, photo gurus on the podcast. It's taken me a while to get here uh, and to this content, but uh, I'm glad that we've got it for you. Today's episode is, is focused a little bit more on kind of a photo 101. It's not a buttons, knobs, and dials, you know, and us throwing down too many numbers at you, um, but really more meant as, a, as an entry-level episode, uh, especially for all of you advisors uh, and or staffs out there who are coming uh, from a background uh, that, that does not involve a lot of photo instruction or uh, familiarity. Uh, before we get into the episode, just a couple of notes uh, across the board, kind of on the punch list here. Uh, I want to remind you that um, along with my, my work in advising and, uh, and hosting uh, this podcast, I've got another project uh, that I've been working on with uh, some collaborators at the Scholastic Press Rights Committee of JEA, uh, another podcast for you, Conversations at the Schoolhouse Gate, the New Voices podcast. It uh, features topics related to scholastic press freedoms and First Amendment rights for students um, of all persuasions as it goes to uh, different publications, broadcast, newspaper, online, yearbook. It's for everybody, students and advisors alike. You can find it where you download and access this podcast, uh, including on Apple iTunes and Google Play. It is, again, Conversations at the Schoolhouse Gate, the New Voices podcast via uh, the SPRC. You can find the SPRC on uh, Twitter at at JEA Press Rights. Uh, speaking of student press rights, uh, we are just over a week from a live taping of the Yearbook Wise podcast in Chicago. Uh, I cannot wait to see uh, you as audience members and, and colleagues and friends and staff and just yearbook people, uh, journalism people in general at the conventions. There's going to be over 6,200 students at the Hyatt Regency next week, and uh, I cannot wait. We're bringing 23 from Tesserae 
And uh, suffice it to say, if you're a friend of the podcast, I'd love it if you uh, if you say hello and reach out when we're there face to face. The uh, live taping that I mentioned is going to be at 10 o'clock on Friday morning uh, and is going to feature uh, a couple people involved in the SPRC as well as uh, advisors from all over the country. Uh, Lori Oglesby, Sarah Nichols, Lori Keekley of the SPRC, and Brian Wilson. Uh, they're going to be on a panel, uh, a really just awesome group of advisors, all stars, all of them, uh, who have quite a bit to say about the First Amendment and uh, students' press rights and supporting our staffs. Uh, It's going to be Scholastic Press Rights with a little bit of a yearbook focus, uh, and that's going to be held at 10 a.m. on Friday in the Grand F Ballroom. Hope to see you there. Oh, and there's going to be some uh, podcast swag at the door. Uh, Limited edition. I think I've only got about 200 to hand out, so get there early. Uh, And finally, if you want to be in touch, uh, you know how. It's at iteachyearbook at gmail.com. And uh, as ever, you can find the podcast on Twitter at at yearbookwise. Uh, For now, though, let's get into it. This is our Photo 101 podcast with Eagle Eye View advisor, Jed Palmer. So, Jed, when we are um, out on the road together at conventions, um, we tend to work with a wide range of students. We've got students in our workshops who have never turned the camera on before, all the way up to students who are shooting their own weddings, which is really cool and invigorating. It challenges you and me to keep up um, with the kids. Um, You and I hear a lot that the advisors that the kids are working with, that the yearbook staffs are working with, um, the advisors themselves come from a wide range of backgrounds. And um, I know, and I think you've got some colleagues too that are come to your book via English and English majors and things like that. So I wanted to explore with you a little bit about advice that you'd share with advisors uh, who don't come from a photo background. Um, This might be an advisor who's listening to the podcast who is in their first or second year advising um, and and knows, uh, and I say this respectfully, but knows even less than the kids may be photographically. Right. Um, we've, we've met those advisors, but where can we point them to start? What's uh, some advice that we could offer to those advisors? I think the the first thing that I tell advisors um, that are just getting started is look at other yearbooks to to start getting an idea of of what type of photography it is that we do in yearbook. Um, especially for a new advisor coming in, they might not have a lot of experience it just in the yearbook realm, and that's probably the best place to get started. Uh, after that, it's about finding quality photography. Um, And I know I've used the analogy uh, in our sessions that that the best way to become a better writer is to practice writing and to read good writing. We give the same advice to photographers. Best way to become a great photographer is to practice photography and to look at great photography. I think that starts with the teacher. Um, Look at great photography. Go ahead. There's opportunities to, um, I, I want to turn it into some practical resources. One right. thing that I've shown from my photojournalism classes is, you know, CNN and many other outlets, but CNN among them do, um, you know, the weekend pictures and things like that, um, where, uh, they, um, are, are, are showing a, a gallery of, you know, from yep. politics to whatever it is around the world. It's a great place to kind of inspire the kids. That That's the kind of stuff you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Um, CNN 10 does their galleries. Um, one that I direct a lot of people to is to look at Sports Illustrated and ESPN on their websites every day. They're posting new photos from the games of last night or the games over the weekend. 
um, you know, look at those great photographers, you know, those great um, photographers and, and what they're shooting at sporting events. Um, go out and look at uh, not just CNN, but some of the other uh, news publications. Newsweek does a great job of publishing galleries, um, looking at the uh, Getty images, uh, finding them on social media. I have uh, Instagram for Getty images is a great resource right now. Um, and so many of the kids are on Instagram. It puts it right in their pocket. Exactly. Uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones. Uh, National Geographic has a great Absolutely. Instagram yeah. feed. Uh, yeah. Just to spend time looking at quality photography to build that understanding in your head of what that image should look like makes it so much easier when it comes time to shoot the image if you know in your head what it should look like. For newer advisors and advisors who need kind of that photo intervention, uh, we're talking about finding inspiration pieces and um, looking at what the greats are doing. Um, when that comes to practical work in the lab uh, or instruction, if an advisor is just utterly overwhelmed with the buttons, knobs, and dials, how do we go from inspiration into actual shooting? Is it developing the eye first? That's normally what I do with kids. Um, you know, really, after you've spent time looking at quality photos, um, try to ignore the the components of the technical education around the camera. I put a camera in their hands and send them out to take pictures. I think that's probably the first step. Get a camera, go take pictures, whether it's your phone, whether it's an SLR that you've got in the lab, um, just that act of clicking the button and seeing the results. Uh, I think that's a good first step. And you work uh, in kind of bearing the lead here. You work with a massive and massively talented uh, group of middle school students. Um, some of the feedback that I've heard online in some of the Facebook groups is, you know, I, I, I'm so worried about trusting my kids with the cameras. Um, I'm worried they're going to come back in pieces and, you know, we have to sign out on contracts and things like right. that. It sounds like you're pretty aggressive and granted, you know, you and I are are pretty comfortable with the idea of putting cameras in kids' hands. But how did you get to that place? And, and what does that look like in the early days when the kids are brand new to it? And how do you develop that trust and those expectations of, quote, unquote, just putting the camera in their hands? The kids come to us now with such an understanding around technology. They've had phones in their hands since they were two years old and able to hold one. Um, emphasizing to the kids uh, around our SLR cameras um, the big thing I tell them is use the neck strap. After that, it's just uh, simple modeling. Um, you know, I'm going to put the neck strap around my neck when we go out to shoot, and now I'm going to go take pictures. Um, I teach the kids how to hand off a camera. Uh, if you're changing photographers, uh, I'm going to take the neck strap off my neck. I'm going to hand it to you. You're going to put it on your neck, and then um, we transfer the camera. Once they understand that, I haven't had a lot of issues with kids um, damaging equipment or abusing equipment. Part of that, I think, comes from just building a respectful environment in the yearbook lab. We start on day one talking about uh, the equipment that we use from the computers, the laptops, the cameras, all of it simply being the tools that we have to have in order to get our job done. Um, and emphasizing with the kids, like, this is what we've got for the year. Let's take care of it. And after that, I haven't had a lot of issues. 
Now, that said, and you and I have been at this a while, I'm assuming we've both, or at least I can speak for myself, we have had some broken lenses here and there in yeah. our lab, right? We're working with teenagers and it is going to happen. So I want to be clear to the listeners, yeah, occasionally accidents happen, but that really shouldn't uh, short circuit getting the kids out there and getting them shooting. It shouldn't. Um, and, you know, we have uh, equipment every so often that does get damaged through the course of of use. Um, you and I both encourage our photographers of sports to be in close. Uh, you've got to be on the sidelines. You've got to be close to where the action is happening. Occasionally, uh, a ball will come out of play and or a player will end up coming out of bounds. Um, we lost a lens last year uh, to a volleyball on a, an errant serve. Those things happen. We have tried to budget in our program um, a little bit of extra money each year for equipment to, to do replacements of damage. Um, and th then when, you know, when we talk about equipment, um, we're not dropping thousands of dollars on a single lens for, for kids, especially for our, our newer photographers. Yeah. And, and let's talk about that because I think there's a, um, a, a bit of a misunderstanding or, or maybe we can just do a little bit of myth busting with it. It, does this equipment does cost money and it can be expensive yet there is a line where it doesn't need to break the bank what, what's some of the advice that you've offered to staffs who need to build up their equipment supply and, and where to start um, if you're starting from scratch um, start by you know we go through this start by choosing a kind of a platform that we're going to work with um, but what I start with with my kids, especially my new photographers, uh, I like to let them use the older equipment. And that's, mm -hmm. that's sure. kind of the first place that I start. We've been able to build a library over uh, about 10 years. So we've got some um, older SLR bodies that we can put into the hands of kids as kind of our training pieces. Um, and those might be, you could acquire those through parent donations. You could acquire those through uh, looking at used camera gear at a local camera shop, things like that to get going. And once the kids are comfortable, they kind of graduate up to the more mainline gear? Yep. Th uh, that's how okay. I work it in my program. The kids kind of make their way through the equipment. Um, nothing that we have in my lab is professional grade. Um, nothing that we have is uh, overly expensive. Um, right. We work a lot with the, the third-party lenses um, that you can get at a, a much more reasonable cost. Uh, you know, my, my favorite is the Yongno 50 millimeter lens. Um, right now they're like 50 bucks. Yeah. But those are great ones to put into the hands of any photographer. Uh, we get really high quality photos out of them, but it's also a lens that, uh, you know, if that volleyball comes errant off the court and hits it, uh, you're not out 400 bucks and it's not right. that challenging right. to replace. Now you talked about platform and you and I are both Canon guys and Canon is of course far superior to any other platform out there. No, that's not, <laughs> not the case. I know at our workshops, you know, our, our in joke is, you know, a, a Ford, a Toyota and a Subaru can all take you to the grocery store to get your, your milk and eggs. Um, once you've hit a particular uh, price point and, and platform, Nikon, Canon, the Sony cameras, they're, they're great. And they're generally going to do and provide the same functionality for you as a staff. But what are the advantages or why is the encouragement to stick with, with just one platform? 
A couple of reasons uh, that we've chosen to stick with one platform in our lab. First, it has to do with the lenses. Um, when we buy those, uh, you know, those after after your first purchase, those advanced lenses, maybe our prime lenses, uh, that lens is dedicated to a camera body system. So when we buy a Canon lens, it will fit on all of our Canon bodies. We can't transfer those lenses into a Nikon body. So if we start buying bodies from a different uh, manufacturer, we also have to rebuy our whole lens library. So financially, that doesn't work for us. Uh, the other issue that I deal with with students is that learning curve. Um, you and I know, and we work with the kids, um, it's really easy for us to find everything on a Canon because we're used to it. Uh, if you ask me about making changes on a Nikon, I'll find it, but it takes me extra time because it's not, right. it's not what I'm used to. Right. Uh, I would rather teach the kids on one platform, whichever one it is, and have them become proficient at it and then spend their time shooting photos rather than spend their time trying to figure out where is this button that I could find someplace else on a different camera. And I would welcome some some disagreement here um, from you. And, and certainly you and I are not. It'd be nice if we were paid by the major brands, but we're not. Um, so this is just anecdotal and personal. But I, um, you know, my, my program is and forever will be Canon because my folks got me a Canon camera when I was in college and, and I just stayed with the platform all the way through. Um, that said, I know that because I've, I've shot on some of them, Nikon makes uh, phenomenal cameras. But I do feel like when you and I are in front of kids at conventions, as we will be next week in Chicago, there there seems to be a shallower and easier learning curve for the Canon platforms and the buttons, knobs, and dials than the Nikon. And, and other people's mileage may vary and may have exactly the opposite opinion. But I, I wonder if, if we're talking to somebody in the audience who is about to make a major investment, um, do you come down just neutrally on it all? Or do you have an edge to one manufacturer just for sake of the discussion? I have leaned towards Canon um, when I'm working, especially with the younger kids that I work with. I believe that Canon is a little more user-friendly as far as um, when we talk about quality photography, especially when you're moving more into um, the intermediate and advanced modes, uh, when we're talking about aperture priority, shutter priority, it's easier for a newer photographer to find those buttons on a Canon. Uh, when I've been able to put uh, a Canon, a Nikon, uh, and even the new, uh, you know, the Sonys and the, the Olympus, the mirrorless, put them out in front of somebody who has very little experience on any of them and say, find where you would change the ISO. The Canons just have it in a place where it's easier to recognize. Yeah, I, th I think we see that a lot, and especially again when those kids, you and I know we're going to meet some kid next Thursday at 8 a.m. who's never yep. turned the camera on for the first time or, or never turned it on before, I should say. Right. And, and it always feels like they do have just, you know, and it, it could be just a couple seconds worth of figuring it and chin scratching, but it, it does seem like an easier, uh, easier path. Now, Jed, I, I want to go back. Sorry, were you going to say something? There? Uh, with that said about the Canons, um, you know, one of the photographers that I had, she started as a middle schooler in my program years ago, um, Maddie Malhatra. Um, uh -huh. when, when, she yep. got, when she got to high school and it was time for her to buy a personal camera, uh, she went with a Nikon. Um, and I've asked her several times, tell me about that decision-making process. Um, and she said, based on the types of photography that she was doing, once she had that firm understanding of 
um, the, the different components of a quality photo and understood that her her methodology was really going to emphasize working with aperture values and shutter speeds. Um, she found that it was easier for her to make adjustments on the fly with the Nikon. Interesting. Once, and she certainly knew what she was doing, so I'll trust her. <laughs> yeah, she's a successful one. Um, but, Absolutely. But I think she's a good example that once you have the basic understandings, that's when it's time for our mm. students to, you know, when they're making that personal decision, um, to say, okay, this is one, now that I know what I'm doing, this is how I'm more comfortable doing it. Right. Um, same for advisors as they, you know, if we've got an advisor that has more experience in photography, um, I think they might be the ones that would tend towards uh, choosing a different platform. Right. Now that makes a lot of sense. Now let's roll back to, and I think we should break down um, for people, a couple of things that we haven't said, you know, vocabulary wise, um, the shorthand that we're talking in, we're, we're referencing DSLRs, digital single lens reflex cameras um, for folks with zero photo background. These are the cameras where you can separate the lens from the body and change the lens based on the story that you want to tell. Some lenses have a wider field of view. Some lenses have a very narrow field of view that's good. It's a, called a telephoto lens that brings that subject out on the soccer field, you know, right onto or into your lap. Um, let's talk just a little bit, Jed, about kit lenses and what a kit lens is and the ways in which it can help a program or where do you need to graduate to very quickly after that? I think the first big thing with the kit lens is um, it comes with, you know, when you buy the kit camera, you've, you're going to have that lens that's ready to go. They're great um, general purpose lenses. Um, we use our kit lenses uh, extensively with our academic photography. Uh, you're going out into classroom situations and maybe you don't know the exact light situations. You don't know um, how far away from your subject you're going to be standing those kit lenses come in uh, really handy because you do have, um, you know, a short zoom range to them, but you can zoom in and out uh, with that kit lens. Um, what I've found over the past probably five years is that all of the major manufacturers are putting better quality kit lenses together with their cameras. Yeah, that's really true. Absolutely. I've seen that. Uh, and, you know, five, eight years ago, um, we wouldn't want to start with, a, an entry level SLR necessarily because we were struggling to get the photos we needed. That's not the case. Now the entry level cameras are, uh, great cameras, um, as far as their performance, the same with the lenses, the, the entry level kit lenses, uh, that are coming on the cameras right now are, are very powerful lenses for us. Um, and we probably shoot, uh, still, uh, 70% of our, our kids are going out with the kit lens on a regular basis. Wow. And they're, they're most challenging in those really low light situations, though, too. Some schools, you know, especially in older constructed, you know, school from the middle, you know, 20th century built in 1960 or something like that may not have high quality lighting or it's got dark hallways. Those can be challenges. You had made mention of that young Nuo 50 millimeter. You and I know that as the nifty 50. Yep. Is, is that a great place for the next purchase? I think that's absolutely the next purchase, um, regardless of your program, regardless of where uh, you might be struggling with your photography, um, buying that, that 50 millimeter prime lens. Um, the young no is, is a great uh, third party lens. Um, but even if you're looking at the major manufacturers, uh, they're putting out a quality 50 millimeter 
at a pretty economical cost for, for schools. Um, the thing that I think my students learn the most when you go to that 50, uh, you can go to that, that wide open aperture, 1.8. The kids are learning so much about what depth of field does to their photography, uh, how much it changes when you go to that shallow depth of field. Um, the other thing I think kids learn when they're working with a prime lens is to use their feet. Um, it, I think it eliminates some of the lazy photography that we have happening of kids trying to stand back and hope that their zoom will get them close and that their zoom will get them a good picture. A 50 millimeter forces them to move around within a situation. And that's important for a, a budding photographer, a first year kid, um, to start to see things from new angles and by forcing them to move their feet, that's what they're gonna do. They're gonna see new angles. And the shorthand that you injected there just on a prime lens for anybody listening who's, who's not familiar with the vocabulary, you could probably infer from what Jed was describing. This is a lens that doesn't have any zoom features to it at all, like the kit lenses do, or like other zoom lenses do. There's primes across the spectrum of focal lengths. You could have a an eight millimeter prime. You could have a 35, a 50 millimeter prime, like the nifty fifties. You could have a hundred or a 300 millimeter prime. I would love to have a 300 <laughs> millimeter prime uh, if they didn't cost like $6,000. Right. <laughs> It's uh, there, there's all sorts of, of shorthand here. And, and I know that Jed and I didn't want to, this isn't the episode for the highly, highly technical, uh, but I want to backfill uh, some of that vocabulary. Um, as we equip or we uh, advise advisors to equip uh, their uh, sign out cabinets. So we, we have kind of a double door, kind of a wardrobe in our lab that kids can sign gear out from. Um, one of the things that, that I've, found myself sharing with a lot of advisors is, is picking up um, at least one really good quality sports lens um, with a longer zoom, a good uh, aperture rating. And again, I don't want to go too deep into all the, the nitty gritty. Um, I'm going to share that, that uh, buyer's link, a, a reference page for all of you listeners in the um, podcast description. But Jed, just real quick, because I think it's you know kit lens, 50, and then this one on sports. Uh, where does that take us? And, and how have your kids made use of a lens like that, the, the 70 to 200? I'll be honest, in a middle school situation, um, we get away with the 75 to 300, kind of the kit zooms. For daytime, get, okay. Uh, because so much of our work is daytime. We have yeah. very little um, evening and nighttime work. Uh, but in the high school programs that I work with, uh, when they're able to invest in that one good sport lens, they see a huge change in successful photography. I think the reason for that, you know, when you've got that great um, sport lens, and um, I've seen a lot of programs be successful, like within uh, the 4.0, uh, the 2.8 aperture is pretty expensive. It's hard to recommend that to a high school. You're looking about $1,200 right. entry point. Um, so when you're, uh, I know on the Canon, we're at about $600 right now for that 70 to 200. The, the biggest thing that I've seen change when a student holds one of those lenses is their confidence level. Sure. I, I think just um, holding a lens that, that feels substantial, that the kids know going out, they've got a better opportunity at success. Uh, they tend to push the button more. Uh, that's going to lead to better photos simply pushing the button more um, and having that that reach of that 200 lens, letting them get a little bit closer uh, to the action visually during those sports events. 
um, really gets uh, even a, a photographer that doesn't know the, the sport, doesn't know what to anticipate necessarily. They can uh, they can get in a little bit closer and they can see what's happening on the field through that lens. Let's step back to instruction, um, Jed. And, and I know that we're a ways into the year, but my hope is that this is a little bit of evergreen coverage and advisors could use this at any point. Could you tell us a little bit about what your early work each year looks like with, with brand new kids um, and, and really focus it, um, no, no pun intended, uh, through the, the thought of, you know, these are, these are a good two, three, four activities, good kind of year starters um, to set a good photography tone with, with brand new kids. Where, where would you start? Where would you advise advisors to start? Um, the first thing I start with is, like we said, looking at good photography. Sure. I right. like to put together a couple of slideshows of our photos from Maybe I go back as many as three years, but we start on day one. Let's take a look at what good photos look like in our previous books. Um, day two, let's look at great photos from other yearbooks. Uh, we'll spend time looking on the NSPA website at the Picture of the Year winners. Um, we'll look at some of those professional sites. On day three, uh, I give them some quick instruction on how to hold a camera, how to push the button, and we go outside and we start playing games um, and then take pictures of us playing games. It's a great uh, kind of two-pronged activity. We do some team building. Uh, we like to do a human knot. Uh, we like to play with Frisbees. Um, you know, I've seen other staffs that play with uh, dice games or, you know, minute-to-win-it type games. Yeah, hula hoops and things. Hula hoops and, yeah, yeah, all sorts of just fun things to get outside um, the weather's nice, it's bright and sunny, great conditions for shooting photos. Um, and then we'll take five cameras with us or four cameras with us and move them around between the kids. And they spend, uh, five minutes shooting and, uh, 10 or 15 minutes playing a team building game, getting to know their classmates. Uh, then we come back in and we start doing photo analysis. So the day after we've done that fun photo event. Let's throw photos up on the projector and let's talk about what went well and what didn't go well. That's a, a great time for kids to learn really quickly, even when they look at my photos, because I'll shoot photos during that time. Um, they'll see how many of my photos are bad photos. Uh, and, and I start getting that idea across that you know, every photographer is going to take a lot of bad photos before they get a good one. Absolutely. Uh, and just to, to start building that routine of anytime there's an event happening, we're going to take a camera out and we're going to shoot 100 pictures. We're going to shoot 200 pictures. And we're going to hope we come back with one, two, three usable photos. Uh, after the, the kids feel comfortable, and I think that's the, the big thing for me is I want kids to feel comfortable with a camera in their hand. Uh, they can turn it on. They can find a mode that's going to work well for them. And they can shoot quality pictures. Maybe they won't be award-winning pictures, you know, the first 10 times they go out, uh, the first 20 times that they go out, but just getting into that act of repeatedly being out there with a camera. As it goes to, to those activities um, and, and beginning of the year stuff, um, I have come to uh, know and respect and appreciate your means of, of kind of framing uh, 
things to think about uh, and, and ways of thinking about photography um, with kids and advisors. So I'm going to put you on, a, on the spot with a little bit of a lightning round okay. and see if we can do kind of the, the elevator summary of, uh, of three things. I'm going to ask you to talk about cards, about shooting the prepositions, and about uh, fence posts. And I'll let you take those in whatever order you like. But these are three things that you've shared with me over the years that I really, I use them in my own lab, and I'd love for you to share them with the audience. So uh, can we start with cards, C-A-R-D-S? So the cards that I use, I, I'm assuming you're talking about my sports cards. Um, yeah, we can go there. Uh, and, and I've got these for a lot of different things. I've done um, just you know, front and back, laminated, uh, just different shooting scenarios that you might be in. Uh, we've got them for a lot of our sports events. So if you're going to a football game, on the front of the card is a map of the football field. Here's where the photographer stands. On the back of the card, it's all the camera settings. So you don't have to think about it. Set the camera like this, and then it tells them, here's the pictures that we're looking for. Um, and we call it the look fours. If you, you're able to get four or five of your look fours, it's a successful photo shoot. We've now created those cards for a lot of our different classroom scenarios in our building. Uh, if you're shooting in our gym, we struggle with uh, yellow light in our gym. So, Don't we all? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so it's right there on the card. Here's how you set the camera to for our gym. Here's where you stand in our gym for our sports events. Um, and here's the look for us. Uh, we've set it up for our auditorium. We've set it up for our science labs. Um, some of our different hallway spaces that we know we can find kids hanging out. So we have those cards pre-built. I print them off, I laminate them, and then every camera set that a student could check out has a set of cards in it. Absolutely love it. Uh, let's talk shooting the prepositions. Shooting your prepositions. Uh, we just talk about uh, this is where great photos are going to come if, you've, if your photographer has a good angle. Uh, and so I just talk to kids about uh, shoot above, shoot below shoot beside um, bird's eye view, worm's eye view. How can you see a scene a little bit differently? Uh, and especially if you have those successful uh, English kids that understand prepositions, they're going to be able to go out and um, find those different angles pretty quickly. One of the other devices that I think you've used, and, and maybe I got it confused with a different cards mnemonic. Do you also talk about shooting your levels? I sh yeah, okay. That's where um, um, I talk about shooting. Uh, what I've been teaching lately is shoot the story. Okay. And I talk about the, the characteristics of a good story. You've got a scene, you've got characters, you've got actions, reactions, and details. Uh, so that's what I was doing. I was spelling it character, yep. action, reaction, detail, and setting and for settings. cards. And okay. yeah, and that's where um, I've noticed that a lot of kids, if you go with cards, they lose the S. And, oh, okay. and they, they, sure. they haven't been coming back with their scene. Uh, and so we always talk about shoot the story. Uh, and the first part that you're going to, when you pick up a book, uh, you're going to get a setting uh, or a scene. Um, but shooting those five levels, uh, going out and saying, okay, I want to make sure that I've got that scenic shot. I've got to make sure I've got actions and reactions, um, shooting the characters. And then the next piece of it is to make sure that when you do your edit, when you do, you know, when you've loaded and you're, you're dumping your bad photos and stuff that you're keeping your story in place. Uh, that's where, um, you know, I found kids when they go into that next step, uh, they tend to throw away their scene shots and I, I can't figure out why they're doing that. Um, but yeah, we want to shoot and we talk about five levels in my class. Uh, so did you get your five? 
And I think a lot of times when you and I look at spreads, uh, when we're, we're either critiquing or you and I are together kind of geeking out on stuff, one of the things that falls down for me with, with some books, and I will be the first to admit that my kids at Tesserae are, are guilty of this at times, is every picture on the page is way stuffed to the top of the head. Right. And, and the photographer hasn't stepped back to establish, oh, by the way, we are in the chemistry lab or we are on stage or, you know, you're not. And it's that scene stuff, isn't it? Yep. That's, it's the scene um, where we've got to shoot wide. That's one of the drawbacks, I think, to a, a student walking out with the, the 50 millimeter lens. That's the one weakness is it's hard to get that wide shot when you've got that 50 millimeter lens on there. Um, right. But really encouraging them take your viewer to the place before they can understand what's happening. They have to know where, it, where it is happening. Uh, use your scene to take them to a place. The other thing that I've emphasized with my students a lot lately is to make sure when you're shooting those characters that we get above the head to below the toe. Um, too often now we're seeing um, shots where we've cut off body parts where you've got those uh, amputations that, um, we really want to avoid. Um, so that's part of their checklist. It, we put it in our look fors uh, that are uh, going out with them. Did you get the scene shot? Do we see the crowd? Um, and then do we have people at a above the head to below the toe level? It opens up so many opportunities once you start designing your book. Uh, you can do cutouts. Uh, you can do your secondary coverage through some of those things. Uh, and then action shots. That's the one that uh, most of our photographers are great at getting. They're doing a great job of always shooting the action. And I tell them for the reaction, sometimes what they want to do is turn around, look the other way, find out what's happening behind you, find out what's happening beside you, um, find out how other people are um, reacting to what's happening on the court or in the classroom or on the stage. Now, I don't want to go too technical, so let, let's keep it on, on the, uh, or maybe a, a technical warning here for those of you listening. Uh, we're going to talk about Aperture real quickly because you absolutely blew my mind about a year and a half ago and, and truly changed how I instruct um, when I'm working with new shooters to help them understand Aperture and depth of field. And this was your fence posts example that you and I have now used together many times when we're at conventions. Um, and it correlates with that idea of like kind of clicking in uh, how many clicks in are we closing down the aperture? But just in kind of our, our summary way, how would you help uh, advisors themselves understand aperture when we're talking about why a 1.8 is better than a 5.6 and, 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 and the rest of that? How do they visualize that? So without getting too terribly technical, what's happening in the lens um, when you're dealing with those f-stops is that uh, that diaphragm, every time you click an f-stop, in that diaphragm is closing down and it changes how much of your photo appears in focus. And what I, I found quite a while ago was that it became almost counterintuitive for people. Um, and so I came up with the analogy of thinking about your F stops relating to your fence posts. If you imagine yourself standing, um, looking along a fence line, uh, that runs from here for, let's say, a mile, and you can see all of those fence posts as it runs down along there. Um, when you set the aperture on your camera, you're controlling how many of those fence posts are going to be in focus. When we go to an F 2.0, you're going to have two fence posts in focus on your photo. 
Whereas if you adjust that out to an F22, you'll have 22 fence posts in focus as you look along that fence line. When we start to look then at quality photography, um, a lot of people will notice some of the best photos, especially around sports, are the ones where we draw out the action because the background is out of focus. Right. And, right. and that's, that's the big thing that we control when we adjust that aperture value. And you're bringing the subjects, or sorry, the audience's eyes right to the subject. You're yep. really saying this is where we want you to focus. Yep, and it really it puts it onto that that subject, and it also eliminates any sort of challenging background situations that you might be dealing with. Um, you can't control uh, the crowd during a basketball game. You can't control facial expressions. You can't control. Um, different obstructions that might be in your background. Maybe it's uh, a, a pole that, you know, a power pole or something that's in your shot. By eliminating that through uh, your aperture value, you control that depth of field. It makes it so that the photographer doesn't have to worry about the background as much anymore. Right. Now, this is going to probably be the first of a few conversations um, for, for you and me here on the podcast. And, and thank you for coming on board with it. Um, let me ask you before we wrap up, uh, Chase Jarvis, a uh, photo blogger, photographer, he once wrote and then created a book out of it, uh, a phrase in a, in a blog. This is early 2000s. He said, the best camera is the one you have with you. And um, you and I have seen a lot of different uh, form factors and shapes and sizes of cameras from point and shoots uh, to you know awesome rigs that kids are shooting weddings with at these conventions. Um, these days, 2018, you can do a lot with an iPhone as long as you've got some quality light to work with. So if there's an advisor out there that has, you know, a staff of 20 and only one camera between all of them, what's a, a quick, you know, punch list of things to watch for and, and advice that you've got for um, students using iPhones and, and, and good quality smartphones? A couple of things uh, will lead to a lot more success when they're shooting with their phones. The kids are pretty successful at shooting a selfie um, and they've practiced it a lot. They haven't spent a lot of time practicing shooting what's happening in front of them. Some of the challenges that come with uh, shooting with an iPhone is being able to hold it stable uh, while you're taking a photo of something in front of you. Uh, and understanding the, the slight shutter lag from when you push the button on the screen to when it captures your image. These are not things that prevent us from getting good photos if we practiced at it. So that's the first thing I would tell people. If you're gonna plan to shoot with your phone, go out and practice shooting with your phone. Um, and the, the better phones are getting, uh, I don't even worry sometimes about uh, some of our sports situations that you can actually go out and shoot. The big thing is, have you practiced at it so you know how to hold it and you know how to uh, hit the button at the right time? Um, I think just you know, getting it in their hands and going out and trying it. Uh, I know in the, the most recent uh, summer and winter Olympics, there were teams that went out uh, for some of the uh, magazines. I know ESPN sent out a team uh, during the uh, most recent Summer Olympics, and they shot entirely with iPhones and got amazing wow. shots. Wow. Um, and, it, you know, I'll, I'll try to find you the link that you can include with this uh, to some of yes. the photos of, you know, what were people able to do with an iPhone at the Olympics? That's incredible. 
I, <laughs> and then and then we've got to make sure that we don't let them uh, Instagram uh, filter the heck out of it, right? Just just the just the raw photo yep. is what we need. Yep, we just right uh, same same thing that we would be doing with those SLRs. We want to be capturing quality image. Um, there is some great software. I've been using uh, Camera Plus on the, the the iPhone side, and the the only drawback uh, to the phones if you are using the built-in software is that you lose the control over aperture value and shutter speed uh, and that we have on the SLR camera. Right. If you go right. to one of the um, uh, third-party software pieces, uh, like I said, Camera Plus is one that I'm using on my iPhone right now. It gives you back that control. I can adjust aperture value. I can adjust shutter speed. I can adjust ISO and control that on the phone. And that puts you, you know, right in line with what we're doing with our SLRs now. So Jed, we are a, a week out, literally a week out. My kids will be in Chicago uh, this time next Wednesday uh, with me and, and you're coming in. Uh, tell me uh, a little bit, putting you on the spot. What, what's one or two words of advice you have for an advisor who's, uh, who's coming maybe to the convention for the first time? What's, what's some of your convention uh, do not misses? Convention do not misses. Good question. Um, I think the biggest thing for people to do is to uh, do their best to network with other advisors that are in, if they can find somebody that's in their area, you know, maybe within 50 miles, as we've got advisors coming from all over the country for convention, try to, to work with your publishing company, try to um, you know, connect with different people that are there, experienced advisors to find that person that's close to you and then ask questions. Um, yeah, when you go to a session, find a session on a topic that looks interesting to you, ask questions. Uh, don't be afraid to, to stick around after the session, to talk to the people that are presenting. Uh, that's how I really got involved in uh, the yearbook world. I went to uh, the National Convention spring of 2007. It was held here in Denver, uh, and it was kind of on a whim that we said, hey, the, I hear this convention's in town. I'm going to go. And the one thing that I did was talk to everybody that I could find. Um, and that's the best advice that I could give to anybody going. Yeah, the, the network is real and what it can lead to on networking and, and friendships and true, true long lived friendships is, uh, it, it, it's profound. Um, you, uh, do you have a couple sessions, uh, in the pipeline this time around? Uh, we've got, uh, the one that we're presenting together, the pre-conference on photography on Thursday. Um, I'm working on a session right now with our friend, uh, Katie Merritt. Uh, it's called, uh, yearbook playlist and it's, uh, looking at a, a 10 song set that, uh, will help you to remember all of the things that are important about putting together a good yearbook program. Uh, I love that. And I'm going to fact check you just in case somebody's going to look at the program. I think it's called is in the program. It says yearbook mixtape. Yearbook, I just looked it up. Uh, you're right. Yearbook mixtape. Yep. Um, and we're, that's awesome 10 o'clock saturday be there <laughs> 10 o'clock saturday and uh a little song and dance uh from katie and i but just some you know really good basic tips on uh what do you want what do you do in order to have just a quality program beginner on up it. through advanced that's great well, uh, Jed, I appreciate your time today. Jed Palmer is the advisor of Eagle Eye View at Sierra Middle School. Uh, he and I are two of the uh, the photo bros and the, the national network, two bald guys that love photography. 
Um, Jed, thanks for coming on the Yearbook Wise podcast, buddy. I, I appreciate the time to be here and I look forward to the next time we can chat. Yeah, there'll be more, Jed. We'll see you next week in Chicago. Excellent.